Morning. I really do love this season of the year, don't you, where we are able to take some concentrated time and uh, reflect on all that Jesus accomplished for us when he came, uh, according to all the promises of God in the Old Testament, and then look forward in that confidence uh, to the day when he will surely and soon come again. Uh, This really is the perspective through which we're to live all the year. Uh, in light of his soon return and the confidence of his great salvation. But it is good to set weeks aside like we do in Advent season and reflect in a concentrated way on the truth of our coming uh, King. It's a joy to be back with you, and it's a privilege to open the Word of God together. If you have a copy of God's Word, open it to the book of Jude. Go to the end and one back to the left. You'll find the little book of Jude, maybe just a page. In your Bible, if you have a fake Bible, you can get it out and scroll to uh, scroll down to the book of Jude. But I do want you to be able to put your eyes on the text this morning. We, we're going to work our way, Lord willing, through the whole book. Uh, and I will necessarily then move fast. It may not feel fast to you, but trust me, I'm moving fast. And uh, I want you to be able to glance down as I reference Jude's uh, argument and put your eyes on the verses that I'm that I'm calling our attention to as we unpack verse 3, which will be the main point of our sermon because it's the main point of the letter, this appeal to contend for the faith. So as we begin, let's pray together. Father, as we've already given you thanks this morning, we pause again to thank you for the gift of your word and your spirit. Yes, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for uh, the incarnation. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for uh, the promise of uh, the pouring out of your Holy Spirit to fill your people. Thank you for calling us to yourself and making us more like Christ. Thank you for the, the day that we await when Jesus comes again and, and takes us into our reward. But how would we know any of that? apart from you revealing it to us in your word and by the power of your spirit. So thank you for these majestic gifts. And I ask now as we open uh, the book of Jude, uh, that what we know not, you would teach us what we have not, you would give to us, and what we are not, you would make us in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So we're going to focus again, if if you want to uh, fill out the outline that is, is somewhat fictitious, but I'll try to stick as close as I can to it on the next page of your bulletin. Uh, the, the main idea in the book of Jude, the main idea in the sermon, is the appeal of verse 3 to contend for the faith. And J- Jude doesn't leave us to wonder or kind of fill in our own blanks when it comes to what it is that we're contending for. He's going to lay that out for us. Or why that effort to contend for the faith is so vital He'll explain that and how it is that we are to carry out the charge to contend for the faith. We, we get a lot of information there as we unpack verse 3. But I would like to begin at the end. I'd like to begin at the end of the book, where we'll come back to as we close. Look with me at the doxology of verses 24 and 25. No chapters in Jude, just one chapter, but verses 24 and 25. Isn't it just, isn't it just wonderful, this doxology? 
It's in my top three. I don't know if you're allowed to rank doxologies in the Bible, uh, but it's with, with the great shepherd of the sheep in Hebrews 13 and that, that majestic Trinitarian blessing in, in 2 Corinthians 13, Jude 24 and 25 is, is right up there. And it's also very helpful in focusing our attention to the way Jude sees reality. You can tell what somebody believes when they praise, can't you? When they pray. Uh, what, what's really in their heart, the convictions that guide their life come out when they pray and, and when they praise. And, and I just imagine that one of two things is true for us this morning as we open the little, the little book of Jude. Number one, we might not even have categories in our brain that make sense for why we would do verse three, why we would contend for the faith. That, that appeal, we've just been marinating for your whole life in a world and sometimes in a church that doesn't even have the categories where that appeal makes any sense at all. It's like if Jude and I played family feud and the category was truths worth contending for, Steve Harvey would just have that Steve Harvey look on his face the whole time, right? Because we're not even in the same, we're not even in the same ballpark. We're not even talking the same language. What we think of as valuable, the convictions that control our life, what's worth contending for, like just miles apart from where Jude's standing, probably as we come to this book, or at the very least, Jude just packs so much theological reflection into so few verses. There's just a lot going on in this book. I mean, don't judge the book by its size. Right? It's, it's punching way above its weight the, theologically. I mean, Jude's just a... I would have loved to hear Jude preach. I mean, you just read him and you see how dense and beautiful his language is. It would have been something else to hear the brother of our Lord preach the gospel. But he just rarely lays out, like, clearly all that's going on underneath what he's writing. And so we can miss the power of what he's doing. Probably both of those things are true of, for us as we open the book, if, if we're honest. And so to help us hear, hear Jude 3 rightly, catch what's happening, let me call your attention to three convictions that he's assuming and building on, but doesn't stop to explain, okay? And, the, and we see him in the doxology. As I said, it's, it's when we pray and praise that our view of reality really comes out. So I want to call your attention to three convictions Jude is assuming in this letter. He's, everything that he's writing is, is drawing strength from these convictions, but he doesn't stop like I'm going to try to do and lay them out clearly. You following what we're doing? Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion before all time, now and forever. Amen. Truth number one, the Christian life is lived with a forward lean. If you don't understand this, you will not get the call to contend for the faith in verse 3. The Christian life is lived with a forward lean. This is, this is my excuse for preaching Jude 
as an Advent sermon, right? Because here we are looking forward to the return of Christ. The kind of life that Jude is calling us for, the kind of life that contends for the faith as he will describe it is a life lived in light of the day when we will be presented blameless before the presence of God's glory with great joy. Again, it's all through the letter. Verse 1, this is the day for which we are being kept in verse 1. It's the day for which we are being strengthened in verse 21 to keep ourselves in the love of God. It's the day for which the rebellious angels are being reserved, verse 6, for the judgment of the great day. It's the day Enoch saw in verse 14, the Lord coming with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment. It's there everywhere. Again, it's just assumed. It's, it's the footer that's in the ground that he builds his letter on top of. But he's writing, therefore, with the assumption that you will hear contend for the faith with a heart that is leaning forward toward the time the real Jesus really returns, sits on a real throne of judgment, and the rest of your life depends how it goes for you in that interview. And because we're convinced that this day will result in many, look at verse 7, many beginning what Jude calls a punishment of eternal fire, our hearts Our contending hearts are longing for the day as the beginning of what verse 21 calls eternal life, (laughs) fullness of joy forever in the presence of our beautiful God. I know you know this. I'm just going to remind you because it's Advent. The word that's doing the work in eternal life is life, right? How many of you know that just an indefinite prolonging of this kind of existence, just because it's eternal, that doesn't make it good, right? What's good about eternal life is that it's life, real, true, full life as it's meant to be in the presence of God, capacitated finally to fully enjoy him as his glory deserves, right? So that, that is eternal life. And verse 21 says, we're waiting. Do you see the word waiting in verse 21? We're waiting for the mercy of Christ. That, that's waiting equals living with a lean, leaning forward toward the day. That's truth number one. Truth number two, the Christian life is lived under the lordship of Christ. The kind of life that Jude is calling us to, the kind that contends for the faith, is one that recognizes, look again at the doxology, uh, verse 25, recognizes that the glory, majesty, this is very regal language, isn't it? Dominion and authority of God, how does it get worked out in our world? Somebody say the word. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we give glory, majesty, dominion, and authority to God, or we experience the rule of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You following me? This is the one who's coming back. This is the judge, okay? 
That's the context. Isn't it interesting in verse 1, in light of this, that Jude does not introduce himself as the half-brother of Jesus? Because I would have been tempted to do that if I was Jude. All right, here's my bona fides. I grew up with this guy. He's he's my half-brother. He doesn't say that. Listen to me because I'm the half-brother of the Lord. He says, I am a slave of the Lord Jesus. And then he expands that relationship to all of us in verse 4, right? Calling him our master and Lord. This authority that Jesus carries, it comes from his identity with God, right? He is equal with God. Verse 5 makes this plain, where, where when Jude says, it was Jesus who delivered Israel from Egypt and then disciplined them in the desert. Now that we, we know from the Old Testament, that's Yahweh. That's the covenant God of Israel delivering them at the Exodus, constituting them as his son at Mount Sinai, and then disciplining them in, for their idolatry in the desert. That's Yahweh doing that. And Jude says, I know, who is one with Jesus, the, the, the person of the Lord Jesus. And we've already seen that it's Jesus before whom we bow on the last day. So, I'm just trying to give you a feel for the way Jude is presenting Christ to us. Is he our brother? Yes, he is. Is he our good shepherd? Yes, he is. Is he our kind-hearted savior? Yes, he is. And the call to contend for the faith, to live with this forward lean, is also a call to foreground the truth. Jesus is the king of your life. Okay? Have I already lost you? Are you with me? Jesus is the king of your life. He is your savior and he's your Lord. And the Christian life that contends for the faith is a life lived under the lordship of Christ. Like Jesus has opinions about the way you live, about the way you spend money, about the way you engage in relationships, about the way you treat your spouse, about the way you discipline your kids, about the way you come to church, about the way you use your words. Jesus has opinions. Do you care about those opinions? You should, because he's your Lord. And that's wrapped up in what we're going to see contending for the faith is all about. Number three, truth number three. The Christian life is, therefore, to be a gracious, earnest, striving after holiness. We're bringing these two truths together now, these first two. The only people who will be rejoicing, do you see rejoicing there in the doxology? Presents you blameless before his presence with great joy. The only people who will be rejoicing when this Jesus returns and sets up his judgment seat are those who are kept from stumbling and are so presented blameless before the presence of his glory. Now, is that blameless like you have the alien righteousness of Christ imputed to your behalf in the eyes of God? That's certainly true. Is that all Jude means here? Or does he also mean that by the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus, you begin to look increasingly like him in your real life? I'm going to say that's where he's going. We don't mistake him here. Look at verse 1. Jude is writing to those who are called and loved and kept for Jesus. He's writing to, verse 3, the saints, 
the holy ones, the, those devoted to God. He's writing, verse 4, to those who know the very grace of God that some are trying to pervert into license for sin. So he's not writing about how we earn our salvation by our good works or somehow get ourselves into the love of God by our obedience. That is not what Jude is doing. And, and we say and here instead of but, because there isn't any tension here in the Bible. Those who are kept by the love of God their Savior, verse 25, must, by the Spirit, be keeping themselves in the love of God, verse 21. Must. They must work out and walk in and bear the fruit of their very great salvation in the obedience of their daily life, or else, Jude's going to, I hope, convince you this morning, or else you will be denying with your walk the Savior you are confessing with your words. That ought not to be. You ought not to deny with your walk the Savior you confess with your words, the Lord that you confess with your words. The stakes are very high for Christian, saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, Christian obedience. The stakes are very high. And that's why Jude, who wants to rejoice with them in our, your common salvation, finds it necessary to urge them first to contend for the faith. I wonder, this isn't in the notes, but it's for free. <laughs> I wonder which side of the sanctification seesaw you tend to put more weight on, which you more tend to emphasize. Um, is it the, the positional side? Like, I'm united to Christ by faith, and therefore... I'm perfect in the sight of God because of the obedience of Christ. It's gloriously true. Or is it maybe on the progressive sanctification side where we're filled with the Spirit for the purpose of growing in our, in our Christ-likeness? Which, which do you tend to emphasize more? I'm, I'm holy in Christ. I'm becoming holy by the Spirit. Uh, what we find in Scripture, I think, is that the order, the order of those two things matters, but not the emphasis. Does that make sense if I say it that way? The order is what Scripture emphasizes, not the truth, the robust truth of either of those things. So, so think about it more like seed and then fruit than a seesaw. Like if I push on the if I push on positional sanctification, progressive goes up or down, right? I, I, it's either or for the seesaw. I don't think Scripture thinks that way. Scripture is more like the order matters, like. The seed that contains the life has to go in the ground first. That's a miraculous work by sovereign grace, attended by the Holy Spirit of God. As he says, you're called and loved and kept. But friends, if that seed is alive, it's going to grow. And it's going to bear the fruit of that Holy Spirit in your life. And both of those things, the seed and the fruit, the position and the progression, are important. And Jude feels really free affirming both of those things, and I wonder if you do. Or if somehow you hear him calling for Christian obedience as taking away from salvation by grace alone. I just remind you, Martin Luther's on Jude's team, right? The grace alone that saves does not remain alone, but issues in a delight in good works. And that's what Jude's going to push us toward as we, as we contend for the faith. So, three truths. 
Jude doesn't emphasize or explain any of that, like I've tried to, to stop and do, but everything he writes in verse, from verse 3 grows up out of it and assumes it on the, and steps on that foundation. So the Christian life is to be lived under the lordship of Jesus Christ, who is coming as judge of all the earth and desires between this day and that day that we grow into his likeness by the gift of his Holy Spirit. Three truths assumed in the book of Jude. And I just preached an eight-point sermon in a five-point sermon, and you didn't even notice. So now let's go to those five points and unpack the call of verse three. The contend for the faith, the call, then, then we'll look briefly at the context, the consequences, if we have the Christian response and close with a reminder of our great comfort. The heart of verse three, the heart of the letter Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I want to I get this call clear. Let, let me make four observations as we work to hear what Jude is appealing uh, for us to do here. Number one, when the Bible ca- uh, talks about the faith, contend for the faith, it's not my personal believing. It's not my personal faith that's in view. Okay, there is my faith, and then there is the faith. And I put my faith in the truths of the faith. Now I've lost you for sure. But two of you are with me. And you, and you know it's really good, don't you? So if you've watched the Indiana Jones trailer, this new one, that's the 18th one or whatever it is that's coming out, and he says, you know, I don't believe in magic or something. What does he say? I lost it. It's a, it's a, ter- it's a terrible line. That's why it stuck out to me. He's like... Um, He's like, what matters isn't just what you believe, but it's how hard you believe it. Have any of you seen this trailer? Okay, so I, I heard that and I thought, oh no. That's the, that's the same conviction that plagues so many people in the church. What's wrong with me is that I don't believe hard enough. That is not what Jude means when he calls you to contend for the faith. Believe harder. That is... that is earning your salvation. That is forgetting that what does all the work isn't the strength of your faith, but the strength of the one you trust in, right? So that's not what Jude means. Believe harder. What he means is there has been the faith, not your subjective believing, but the objective truth of who God is and what he has done for sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ that has been handed down to you. The faith is what we put our faith in. It's what we're trusting is true. So that's number one. The, this is the faith. Note that. Number two, the content of this faith has been del- once for all delivered to the saints, he says. The Bible describes this delivery in, in uh, the pastoral epistles, for example, as the pattern of sound words you have heard from me, Paul says uh, to Timothy, or the good deposit that's been entrusted to you, or the word that I have preached to you in which you've received, he tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. You get it? So it's been once, the faith, the objective truth of what God has done for sinners in Christ has been passed down to you. It's It's a body of truth, if I can put it that way, that you have heard and received by faith. You with me? What that means 
is that contending for the faith you have received is a conservative, not a creative act. You get that? So I don't know what you, what you, where your mind immediately goes when you hear the call, contend for the faith. Like, what do you picture yourself doing? Well, what you're not doing is adding or adjusting or advancing in some way the truth of what God has done for you in Christ. You've received it. It's happened and been handed down to you. And you contend for it by conserving it, protecting it, guarding it as precious and full and amazing as it truly is. So I think that's why the opposite of contending for the faith is described in words like wandering in 2 Timothy, wandering, or here in verse 4, perverting, like twisting and denying. They, they pervert the grace of God, verse 4, into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord. So whatever, whatever contend for the faith means, there it is, objectively fixed. And what, what we're doing is guarding it and living according to it. And one more thing. Notice the way Jude begins the letter. I, I don't think this is throwaway, these first couple of verses, before he gets to verse 3 and says, but here, here's the point of the letter. I'm appealing to you to contend for the faith. He opens, he opens with this warm meditation on our salvation. Verse one, uh, verse 1, we are those who are called by the Spirit. If any of you here this morning are believing in Jesus Christ, this is how that happens, right? The Holy Spirit called you effectually in your heart and opened the eyes of your heart and turned that heart of stone into a heart of flesh that could see Jesus as true and as beautiful and saving as he really is, and you closed with him by faith called by the Spirit, beloved in God the Father, kept for, or your version may say by, kept by Jesus Christ. So there's the whole triune God gloriously at work in your salvation. And then he moves right into verse 2, and he prays from that truth that, that the mercy that you know by the Spirit and the love that you've tasted of God the Father and the peace that is yours as you rest in the saving arms of Christ would be deepened and refreshed in your experience of your great salvation, be, be multiplied to you. I, I think it's on purpose that Jude begins that way because he's saying, this is what I want to talk about with you. This is what believers ought to fellowship in together is the, is the greatness of our common salvation. But I see a threat to this joy, namely your need to contend against wandering away into vain and empty promises. And so that's what we're going to focus on for my brief letter. But, but don't lose sight of the, of the warm eagerness at the beginning and the joy at the end. That really does wrap up the letter, the call to contend for the faith. Contending for the faith begins and ends, not to mention showing mercy to others, as we'll get to at the end, contending for the faith. You think, well, how should I picture this? What's happening as I contend for the faith? For the faith? Well, well, one of the things you need to be clear on is that it begins and ends with a happy heart. Contending for the faith begins and ends with a happy heart. 
It begins by having our own hearts struck anew and afresh with the truth that we are the beloved of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Isn't that amazing that you are sitting there and I am standing here loved by God the Father? Isn't that remarkable? Like, I wonder how long has it been since that's dawned on you? Like, really dawned on you? Like, oh my goodness, I'm going to need a moment because that is amazing. Jude starts that way, ends that way, and I think we're supposed to learn from that that this is what contending for the faith flows out of. Like, I'm going to guard this because it's so good, and it's what it goes into, right? Like, uh, this is why I want to bring more of you along because this is really good. This is, in fact, a foretaste of life itself. I think we're supposed to learn from the way Jude wants to talk about the greatness of their salvation. And then finally, uh, what does this call mean to contend for the faith? Well, look at verse 4. Verse 4 shows us what's happening on the ground that makes verse 3 necessary. Contend for the faith because, the beginning of verse 4, for certain people have crept in who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny only Lord and Master Jesus Christ. Now, do you notice what the denial of Jesus looks like in verse 4? It's in the church, it seems, because they've crept in, right? And he's about to say uh, in verse... uh, He's about to say uh, that, that they are threats to our love feast, which is, a, which is a, something that happens when the church is gathered together. Contend for the faith because some people are denying Christ. He, he's not asking here if you agree that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin or if you agree that he's fully God and fully man in one person. Or even if you agree that he's raised from the dead and reigning at his father's right hand and soon to return. He's not asking any of those doctrinal questions, okay? Are you hearing what I'm saying? Like, when we think about what it looks like to deny our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, we might be tempted to run first to doctrinal questions. And so Jude would say, if anybody's fuzzy on the hypostatic union, explain it to them. And that's not what he says. I'll give you... $20 well spent right there. It's, had, her, had her queued up for that one earlier. But what does he say instead? They are perverting the grace of God that forgives sin and enables you to go to war against your remaining sin by turning it into a license for more sin. The denial of Jesus Christ is an ethical issue here. Not just a doctrinal one. Is, is doctrine on the line? Absolutely it is. That's why I made, waved my arms around so much earlier about the, the importance of keeping our positional and our progressive sanctification tied together. They work like seed and fruit or root and fruit. But the issue here is people are giving themselves over to sensuality. They are denying Jesus Christ. Can you handle that? Contending for faith is an ethical issue here. So, so Redeeming Grace Church... You can read lots of books of good theology 
and you can hear lots of sermons of good theology, and you can sing lots of songs with good theology, but if you indulge what verse 18 is going to call your ungodly passions, and you put that on God's tab, like what else is grace for? I'm just giving His grace something to do, a place to show off in my life. You are standing around the charcoal fire with Peter saying, I don't know him. It doesn't matter how much good theology you read and sing and pray and sit under. If your life is ungoverned by the Lord Jesus, you are denying him. That's Jude's point. I don't know him. When you twist the gift of God's grace into license for indulging your sin. Contending for the faith, then, has to do with living out what you say you believe. That's a long way to, that's the long, not, they're not all that long. Um, you're there living in fear. I can see it. Uh, but I, I want you to hear the charge to appeal for the faith, uh, for the, uh, to contend for the faith in that way. It is, it is the faith. It is established by God outside of us. It has been received and therefore is to be guarded uh, by us as we joyfully live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's verses 3 and 4. Now, the context, continuing this idea of where does this denial come from? I don't want to do that. I don't want to deny my Lord and Master Jesus Christ. I want to have eyes to see when that's happening in others. What does it look like? Well, verses 5, 6, and 7 can serve us here, I think, as we're grappling with that call in in verse 3. It does give us the spiritual lineage of these people, Jude calls them, these people. In other words, this, this tragedy of using rebellious or religious words to cloak a rebellious heart against God, that's not a new strategy. That's something that's been going on for some time. The church has faced it, been built in the face of it for 2,000 years. So be warned, but be encouraged that the Lord's going to continue to build his church. This isn't new this need to contend for the faith. But second, Jude is putting his finger on a specific area of your life and my life where the call to contend for the faith, to live joyfully under the lordship of Jesus, most often presses or comes down to make a difference in our real life. See if you can hear it as I read verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, That Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as, third example, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Verse 8, yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh. So you probably noticed that all of these examples, this, if I can call it like the spiritual pedigree of these people, the examples they're following as they pervert the grace of God, to their own destruction. These, these examples all do end in destruction. Israel in the wilderness, the angels, Sodom and Gomorrah. But do you also notice that they represent in different ways distortions 
of the good gift of our sexuality. Most clear probably in the first example of Israel, as Paul develops it in 1 Corinthians 10, they sat down to eat and drink, they rose up to play, which is euphemistic there. The third example, Sodom and Gomorrah, makes it very explicit. And in like manner, verse 8, seems to place again the focus here. What's the point? The point is that Jude is alerting the church that our sexuality is a powerful place where the confession of our mouth, Jesus is my Lord, I'm saved by grace, I'm filled with his Holy Spirit, must translate into practical differences in the way we live as Jesus is Lord over our personal desires and Lord over the cultural vision for personal realization that is so thoroughly tied to our sexuality. It's not the only place, but it's a frequent context for the call, contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Joyfully live under the lordship of Jesus here. We need to move on to verse 10, but before we do, maybe just at least this quick reminder. If Jesus is our Lord, and he is, and if his lordship over our lives expresses his good heart for us, which it does, that means, beloved, that true freedom and fulfillment is found underneath and within the boundaries of his commands. Now, I wonder if you believe that, but that's true. That's the way the Bible talks. You are not your own. You have been created and now recreated, bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, which, by the way, is the path to fullness of joy for you. The one who created us knows how he designed us to flourish, including in the area of our sexuality and through the area of our sexuality. And more than just knowing how he's made us to flourish, he has revealed his design for our flourishing in his word. Do you know what that revelation is called? Commandments. Commandments. And we get our back up when we hear that idea that anyone, even the one, might dare to interdict his design his desire, his will on my personal private expression of who I am. And he says, well, only if you want to stop drinking from dry and broken cisterns that hold no water and begin to partake of the fountain of living water. My, my path to fullness of joy runs in the way of my commandments. I know how I designed you to flourish. I've showed you by my commandments in my word. Now, will you joyfully live under the lordship of Christ here, trusting that, that God's word is not the impediment to realizing fullness, wholeness, who you truly are, your identity, but is in fact the way to that realization? I hope you hear what I'm saying. I hope your heart trusts in the good heart of the wise creator. Contending for the faith 
includes not just orthodox sexual behavior instead of immorality, but also a heart that rests in the good of God's boundaries and his commands. We keep going. The consequences. Jude's going to circle back around to the other side of this battle for your heart. And he's going to show you the consequences of those who fall for the oldest of lies, right? God gave you those boundaries because he doesn't want you to have any fun. That's the oldest of lies. That is the lie from the garden on. God gave you those boundaries. He said, don't do that, but do this because he doesn't want you to have any fun. Don't you want to give God something to forgive? Don't you want to know what you're missing? Well, verses 10 to 13 will show you what you're missing. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand. Verse 11, woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and they perished in Korah's rebellion. Second half of verse 12, these are waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. My translation, by your obedience to Jesus Christ, you aren't missing anything except for the gloom of utter darkness reserved forever. This is the truth that we put over against the ad and entertainment industries spending their billions of dollars to sell you the opposite idea. This is the truth as it is in Jesus. Will you contend for the faith? Our obedience to Jesus in all areas of life, including our sexuality, is not settling for less. It is, Psalm 1611 shows us, pursuing real and lasting pleasure at the Father's right hand. Now, many of you have been listening like I am tempted to do. You've been listening so far all by yourself. And you've been thinking about what you have to do as an individual. And all this talk about your sexual identity and behavior just reinforces that idea because our culture tells us that is the ultimate private uh, area. Notice with me the beginning of verse 12, however. Jude's going to bring the corporate context of the appeal to contend for the faith out into the open. These rebels against God's way, these are hidden reefs or blemishes, but there's a reason that reefs is in there, at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. Again, the idea of community has been there all along, if we have eyes to see it. Verse 3, the common salvation of the saints, uh, the creeping in to the church of verse 4, the people of verse 5, the cities of verse 7. It's here in verse 11 as well, as God's punishment of Cain and Balaam and Korah includes, if you remember, all those who cast their lot in with them. This is a corporate dynamic that we're dealing with. The corporate response of God's people to these people has been in view. The point of verse 12 is then we bear the consequences of contending for the faith or not together. He's talking to the church. This is being read to the church. To put it even more specifically then, what we do when we are together 
is an important part of contending for the faith, of embracing the lordship of Christ joyfully over every area of our life. The one example he uses here is the supper. Apropos, we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Think about what's happening as we partake together as a church at the table of the Lord. We are seeing in the broken body and spilt blood of the Son of God, the heinousness of our sin that required such a sacrifice to cover it in God's sight. We are beholding the example of our Lord as he laid down his life in service of others. We are eating and drinking until he comes in anticipation of the day when our king returns. We are renewing our allegiance to the king and asking the Holy Spirit to make us more like him. We're doing all of this in the context of fellow members of the body. And Jude says in verse 12, if you use that context to spout off or act out a distortion of love as taking what you can get and not bothering to serve anyone, much less obey the king of heaven, because won't God forgive you? That is an exact inversion of the gospel. That is a perversion of the gospel to take the Lord's Supper in such a manner. The best word he can put on it is verse 15, ungodly. Convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they commit in such an ungodly way. Parents, we've all been there before, right? We can just kind of keep sputtering the same thing over and over again and hoping they're going to get it. Do you get it? That is the opposite of godly. That is anti-Christ. That is ungodliness. To look at the place Jesus laid down his life for us, that we might lay down our lives for one another and use it as an, ex- as an excuse or an, ex- or an opportunity to take what we want. If I can say it this way, everyone else be damned. That is ungodly. Tolerating that kind of coming to the table Tolerating that kind of behavior is like running the ship of your faith back and forth over a reef. You're distracted by all the pretty colors and the plants and the sponges, and it rips the bottom out of your life in God. Ephesians 5 fits here, I think, Paul's words. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them, for at one time you were darkness, now you are light in the Lord. Walk, therefore, as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Do not fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Expose them. So we come at last, number five, to the Christian response. What does exposing look like? Verse 17. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last days, there will be scoffers following their own, here it is again, ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in or on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, 
waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So contending for the faith looks like building up. It looks like keeping yourself in the love of God, that main idea by those three ings, those ing participles all around the main verb. They tell you how to do it. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith on the foundation of the word of God, praying in the spirit for the power of the spirit of God to obey his word, waiting for the mercy of God. I'm not earning any of this. This is all God's work in my life, enabling me to keep myself in the love of God. And contending for the faith looks like not only building up, edifying your faith, but reaching out. Reaching out. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Show uh, uh, mercy to others with fear. Think about this now. There's two ways that we can make it clear that we're not on the same side with someone, right? That we're not together with that other person. Well, you could certainly emphasize your, your separateness or your distinction from them by throwing things at them, right? Throwing kind of truth grenades, throwing, lobbing things over the wall at them as your enemies. That certainly communicates we're not together. But the second way, I think, is what Jude has in mind here, that you show you, we are not in fellowship. We are not together. There's a separation here in the way we're living our lives is that you reach out to them. Do you see that? Reaching out to someone communicates, we are not together, but I do want to invite you to come to the light that you might live. And that's what Jude is inviting us to do here, reaching across the wall to them, not as enemies, like, go away. That's not what contending for the faith means. Reaching out to them and inviting them to come. To Christ that they might live. Move from death to life. That's, that's the posture that Jude is urging on us here with those who are perverting the grace of God and denying our only master and Lord. It is a ministry of mercy. A ministry of mercy. Mercy that doesn't play games. Don't hear mercy as something soft here and easy to take advantage of. Mercy doesn't pretend that differences don't matter. Mercy isn't dictated to by the feelings of the other person, like, oh, that feels not loving to me. It's exactly what you need. Neither does mercy give up or withdraw or write people off or cross her arms and look smug because they're going to get what's coming to them. Mercy doesn't run back and forth over the reef, but mercy does reach out and try to draw others up into the boat. Mercy knows the day of judgment is coming. Mercy knows eternal destinies hang on how it goes at that interview. Mercy knows that there are many who are in our midst who are talking the talk, but using religious words to disguise rebellious hearts against God. They may not even recognize they're hoping in a lie. They have a false assurance and mercy knows there, but for the grace of God, go I. And because mercy knows all these things, A ministry of mercy pleads and prays and cries and rebukes and exhorts and speaks the truth in a persistent love and with patience and kindness and gentleness, bearing with one another, all while refusing to pretend. 
or back down from the fact that a claim to salvation is no refuge for someone living ungoverned by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not easy, but it's as real and important as it gets. A ministry of mingling zeal for holiness with mercy toward those who doubt. So here again, as we close, the encouragement and the confidence that comes from knowing that our work, our contending, our keeping is real and meaningful, but not ultimately decisive. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Beloved, This is the way God has chosen to keep you in his sovereign love. He has clothed you with Christ. He has filled you with his spirit. He is completing in you the work that he has begun. And so, as we consider the call to contend for the faith, may the mercy, peace, and love of the Lord be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the way your word shows us what is real, what is most needful, what is most important, what is most valuable, and the way through your word you have appointed to send us your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to that value and to change our heart from preferring the things of the world to cherishing the treasures of the kingdom. I pray that miracle would happen now as we sit under not only the preaching of your word, but now as we observe the Uh, the sign uh, that makes tangible the truth that we have just heard together, the preciousness and the value, the holiness and the justness of who Jesus is and what he has done. Would you impress the joy uh, and the soberness of our great salvation upon our hearts as we meet you at your table in Jesus' name. Amen.